1: What is it that makes us who we are? Science seems to hold the answer. Our DNA has a significant impact on much of what we like, who we're attracted to, our tastes in food, even what political party that we lean towards. A new book says that many of our most defining traits come from things that we have no control over, like our evolutionary past and our genes. The book is "Please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. It was written by Bill Sullivan, who's a professor of pharmacology and toxicology, as well as microbiology and immunology at Indiana University's medical school. Bill is also a graduate PhD grad from here at the University of Pennsylvania, and a pleasure to have him joining us right now. Bill, welcome and welcome back to Penn for a while.
0: Hi, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here, and always good to revisit Penn.
1: Thank you for your for your time. So it, there seems to be, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, a, a decent amount of research in trying to understand the relationship here, but why haven't we reached a better understanding of it, do you think? I think
0: a lot of the research outside of DNA is actually quite new, and even some of the discovery with with genes and our behavior is, 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 is uh, on the cutting edge because we've long appreciated they dictate physical traits, but we haven't appreciated how far genes can really impact personality and behavior in combination with forces in the environment, which introduces the new science of epigenetics.
1: And so you call them hidden forces. Obviously, part of this involves inside of our, of our body where we don't, uh, where we don't really uh, dig as much as, as a general public, correct?
0: That's exactly right. This is, you know, we usually think of things that govern the self, our personality, our actions, those are fully controlled by some sort of entity in the mind. Uh, but we are finding that we are kind of like Pinocchio, okay? And there's a lot of strings attached to us. Some of those are genes, some of those are epigenetics, and some of those are even the microbes that reside within our gut. And they're pulling us in ways that we don't realize, that we're not fully conscious of.
1: And so part of this, it goes to even the laboratory that you're involved with uh, out at, the, at uh, Indiana University, correct?
0: Exactly. Um, When I got my Ph.D. at Penn, I worked in the laboratory of David Roos, and we studied this fascinating parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, which amazingly is present in one-third of the world's population, and and most people don't even know that they have it. And there's emerging studies that this this parasite, which lives in the brain for the rest of the person's life— can be influencing certain neuropsychoses, everything from schizophrenia to rage disorder to risk taking behavior
1: now genes are obviously for for each of us uh we get them because of our, our of our parents not everything though that we have in our life is, is from our parents obviously there comes a point where the genes stop and, and i guess our environment or our life experience takes over correct
0: in a way, that is that is true. We are born with the genes that our parents gave us, and there's nothing we can do about that, really. It's kind of like sitting at the poker table. You get a hand of cards. Those are the ones that you have to play. Right. But what we have to realize is that there's multiple ways to play that hand, and that's where the environment comes in. So we can't take someone's genetic sequence and view it as a crystal ball. It's not going to tell us everything about complex behaviors like um, – you know, um, you know personality traits and what people are going to do with their lives. So it's not a crystal ball in that sense. And epigenetics is the study of how the genes that you have, the ones that mom and dad gave you, can be modified by factors in the environment. And we're not talking about changes in right. the DNA sequence, but we're talking about modifications to the DNA molecule itself or the proteins that associate with it that can change how the gene is activated. It can turn it up or turn it
1: down, much like a volume knob. And so how frequently do we think that 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 is actually occurring today?
0: Scientists, are. this is a very active area of investigation, and it seems to be happening even before conception. So there are activities that men and women can engage in, such as um, their diet, whether they smoke or not, whether they um, consume a lot of alcohol. Epigenetic changes are are already taking place on the sperm and egg of those individuals who are engaging in these behaviors. What that exactly means in terms of fetal development has remained to be seen. When the um, fetus is in utero, there's epigenetic changes that can be occurring there, too, based on the environment that mom finds herself in. And then they actually occur throughout the rest of our lives because there's things we encounter in the environment that can modify whether our genes get turned on or off or somewhere in between.
1: So let's talk about a couple of areas, if we can, and I'll have you explain them a little bit further in terms of the research that you've done and, and others have done and, and what you talk about in the book. Uh, addiction is, is obviously a big topic right now because of the opioid crisis. Sure. How How is addictive behavior being impacted by what happens with what we have with our DNA and our genes?
0: Sure. That's a great example and very timely.
1: So many people think
0: that conditions like addiction to drugs or alcohol or addictions to food, which can lead to obesity, many people think these conditions are self-inflicted. It's a failure of willpower. But the science shows that it's far more complicated than that. Genes clearly make some people more susceptible to food or drug addiction, so it's not simply a matter of self-control. Some people have a thrifty metabolism, and these genes are maladaptive in today's world because it's so calorie-rich and sweets are easy to find. Some people even have a gene for a sweet tooth. Right. In terms of alcoholism, some people have genes that build hyperactive brains. So they're in this um, state of over-excitability, and it provokes them to use alcohol to quiet the chaos in their head, which can lead to alcoholism. There's even evidence that our microbiome, all the trillions of bacteria that reside in our gut, can influence cravings for junk food, or even the ability to stay sober. So we can treat conditions like this much more effectively by learning the biology behind them rather than just simply dismissing it as a lifestyle choice.
1: So then something like willpower, to a degree, is overrated. I,
0: yes, I certainly
1: don't mean to dismiss it out of hand. It's, right. a, it's
0: a component of all of this, and you need strong support groups, and change is certainly possible. We're not trying to set up biological determinism here. But what we are saying is that we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss someone who is struggling with these problems, because it's not a simple matter of willpower. These genetic forces, these microbial forces can be extremely potent. And uh, if we understand the nuts and bolts behind that at a molecular level, then we can come in and introduce new therapies that may be incredibly
1: useful. And so that would playing off of that that would also fall into the category of the foods we eat and the types of diet that that we actually have not going on a diet but what we eat as a as a combined uh, uh, m- you know selection of meals over the course of a week or a month.
0: Mom and dad have always said you are what you eat, right? And it sounds boring and trivial, but that is so true. And uh, unfortunately, in this country, the Western diet is probably one of the worst things that we can do for ourselves. Just the extraordinary amount of, of sugar, fat, and salt that we consume on a regular basis is a far cry from what our bodies were evolved uh, to digest on the African plains. So that's why we have um, these the sweet tooths and this drive towards fat. Those are calorie rich and calories were very hard to come by back on the African plains. So we evolved bodies to be pretty thrifty in, with regard to metabolism. And now that we're surrounded by all these calories, it's having horrible effects in terms of obesity and diabetes. So we have to take control Of the microbes in our gut and our food can be a really important source for that because our microbes it turns out they produce substances that make us hungry that make us crave the nutrients that they need so there are certain species of bacteria that thrive on sugar or species that thrive on fat and they're going to make you hunger for those materials so you get caught in this vicious
1: um, feedback loop but then we see the differences in what we crave, uh, even here within within our own country, within our own culture, from person to person. So I mean, it, you can even bring it down to an even smaller uh, level in terms of, of of the differences and the the wants and the needs of people in their diets.
0: Exactly, and that's where we can come back to genes as well because – and this is one of the things that fascinated me and actually, to be honest, one of the things that prompted me to write this book is that our genes can dictate what sort of foods and drinks we like or dislike. I mean that that's pretty powerful because if we if we, we think of – our preferences for food and drink to be one of our most self-defining qualities. And here it is, we're, you know, like a puppet string, genes are influencing us to like certain foods. For example, I can't stand broccoli. I can't stomach it. Yeah. I, 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 I've been like that way all my life. Yeah, my, da- my daughter's like that. And I was wondering all through my life, what in the world is wrong with me? You know, I see all these other people putting broccoli into their mouth and they're seemingly enjoying it and i could never experience that and it turns out i have a genetic mutation that builds and puts taste bud receptors on our tongues so i and i got tested for this so i have the data and i can show my parents look i wasn't joking this this broccoli tastes extremely bitter to me because my taste buds are filled um you know my tongue is filled with taste buds that bind to the bitter chemicals in broccoli
1: well, I think I found it interesting that I guess there there was even a look uh, talk about somebody who's famous about Ozzy Osbourne and the fact that he is he has this innate ability to be able to drink a lot uh, and use drugs as well and still have a relatively healthy body.
0: It's pretty amazing. Um, scientists actually sought out Ozzy Osbourne back in 2010. This is when genome sequencing was just coming online. So it was very expensive and very laborious. You would think that scientists would go after maybe the, the, the most intelligent people in the world or the most artistic or the most athletic. And well, to a degree, Ozzy is artistic. He is the prince of darkness after all. Yeah. So um, they actively sought him out. Uh, because they were puzzled, at just as you were. Why is this guy still alive after all he's done to his body? After all that drug and alcohol addiction, what's going on there? And maybe we can learn something about, you know, uh, ad- ad- addiction people who are um, sensitive to addiction in general by looking at his genome. So they sequenced it.
1: Hopefully, they, you can, yeah, go ahead. Hopefully, they searched out Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones as well, because he could be he could be in that same boat. I joke that Keith
0: Richards is not built from DNA. There's, he is built from something entirely extraterrestrial. I don't yeah. know what it could be. But, you know, that is, that is a um, remarkable specimen as well. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they got DNA um, from Ozzy. He was all on board with this. He was fascinated by it, even though he joked that the only gene he knew anything about was the guy in KISS, referring to Gene Simmons. <laughs> right, right. So scientists assembled this. I call it the DNA diary of a madman, uh, stealing one of the titles of his of his albums. And they found a never-before-seen mutation in a gene called ADH4, which is interesting because that's an alcohol dehydrogenase that resides in the liver, and huh. it detoxifies alcohol. So the rest of the mechanism hasn't been fully worked out, but scientists have speculated because of that mutation, Ozzy might be, better able to process alcohol, detoxify it more quickly.
1: Do they know how quickly that, that actually occurs? Because I would think, and, and again, part of this is just going off of the stories that you hear, it would have to be a, a relatively quick turnaround process. It may be.
0: Like I said, more research needs to be done to answer those specific questions. But it's probably not a coincidence that he's got a variation in a critical liver enzyme that processes alcohol. He also had some variations in a variety of um, genes that encode for neurotransmitters and some other, um, you know, facets of the brain that make him six times more likely to crave alcohol in the first place. So he probably has one of these hyperactive brains that I talked about earlier, which is normally calmed down by a neurotransmitter called GABA, which looks exactly, well not exactly, but very similar alcohol. So alcohol is basically a form of self-medication to calm the brain down. A bad medication, but it calms yeah. the brain down.
1: One of the other areas I wanted to touch on with you is the decisions we make uh, when we're looking for a partner, uh, husband and wife, uh, you know, partner in general uh, to spend the rest of our lives with. How does that factor into uh, the, 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 the genes and the DNA that we have?
0: There's some really fascinating studies, um, one of which relates to genes and another one which actually relates to the microbes in our gut, which is very surprising so the the I, 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 when I started to research this, this was another topic that was kind of personal to me. I've, I've withstood my fair share of rejection throughout my single years, and I was always wondering, okay, well, what's wrong with me? And I feel much better about it, and people who read this book will probably feel better too, because it's more like organ rejection when someone turns you down. So let me explain that. There was this famous experiment done. which involved women sniffing T-shirts, sweaty T-shirts, that had been worn by men. You know, it's not something that sounds like you want to do on a Friday night. It was all for (laughs) science, so it was for a good cause. But what the interesting result was, was that women who had immune system genes that were very similar to the man, she found his scent repulsive, whereas if the man had immune system genes that were different from hers – she was attracted to his smell so there really is something like chemistry that can draw two people together Um, and the whole reason behind this is evolutionary because when we procreate we want offspring that are better equipped to fight off germs and pathogens and if you have a diverse immune system the baby's going to be have a higher probability of fighting off those diseases
1: Okay, so I'll throw this part in, looking at it from the other perspective, then. Is there an element of this, and I don't know if this has been researched to this, uh, that there's an element that can explain the high divorce rate that we have uh, in the world right now?
0: Divorce rates are about 40% in this country, so that's nothing to shake a stick at. But it's also nothing to be embarrassed about. Um, There's been a lot of pressure, especially in America, to stay together for life. And that's really weird to do. If you look at the other animal kingdom, the, all the other species, that is extraordinarily rare um, that any other species does that. So we're unusual in that regard. And I'm not saying that people should stop doing it or, you know, if you can live with the same person until you're 80 or 90, that's fantastic. I hope to be one of those people. Right. But you shouldn't feel bad. Monogamy is very weird um, in in terms of um, coupling in the animal kingdom. Helen Fisher wrote some fantastic books about this. She's an anthropologist that has studied this probably more than anybody else on Earth. And what we usually find in species that pair bond, which again, we're only talking about like 5% of all the species in the world, Mm -hmm. the, the ones that pair bond usually do so only for a certain number of years. And that number of year correlates directly to when the child can start to take care of itself or when the offspring can take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And then the parents usually go their separate ways. Some of them stay together and have another child. That's called um, serial monogamy. But others find different partners and diversify their genetic portfolio. There's pros and cons to each side. So you get genetic diversity if you have multiple partners, but you also get family units, which can be tremendous strengths if you stay with the same individual.
1: You also talk about uh, a people's beliefs, uh, and I wanted to touch on that for a minute. And and I think the assumption is, from a lot of people, that some of the beliefs that we have are passed down from our parents, from our other family members. Uh, but then when you get into something like politic, uh, politics, political beliefs, it, it, it can start to separate a little bit because of maybe of outside influences.
0: It certainly can.
1: Paul, this is a realm of science that's
0: called genopolitics. And certain researchers have basically looked at people on the far right and the far left and tried to see what kind of genetic differences exist between the two, if any. So one of the most interesting genes that have fallen out of these studies so far is a variation in something called DRD4. This is a gene that encodes a dopamine receptor dopamine is a critical neurotransmitter in the brain that drives us towards rewards. Mm -hmm. And it is variable amongst the human population. Some people have a variation of this receptor that causes them to engage in more risk-taking and novelty-seeking behavior. They're more exploratory. So that variation tends to be associated with liberals. So that's I found that to be very fascinating, that there could be a thread of our biology that tugs us towards (laughs) one end of the political (laughs) spectrum or the other. So that was fascinating.
1: We're joined by Bill Sullivan, who is the author of the book Pleased to Meet Me, Uh, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. I wanted to finish up talking about about social media because of the fact we're in this digital culture. We're so influenced by it. We're so impacted by it on, on a daily basis. How is our society and the digital culture playing a role in this as well?
0: It certainly impacts us on a number of levels. It can affect your mood, for one thing. So Facebook, unbeknownst to its users, conducted a study several years ago where they selected certain members of Facebook And then just started putting a whole bunch of either negative posts or positive posts on their page. And again, the user was oblivious to this. They were not informed. turns out that people who were flooded with negative posts started posting more negative things people flooded with positive posts started posting positive things. So we can certainly be influenced at a subconscious level based on what we're reading in, in social media. So we need to be vigilant about that. Another important point about social media is that our brain loves to hear when people agree with us. You see a flash of dopamine associated with this. Our, our, our brain eats that up like candy. Social media cr- makes it, incredibly easy to generate echo chambers. So all we do is preach to the choir all the time and disparage the other side without really getting to know them or appreciate the merits that might be in their arguments. So again, with social media, it's important that we step outside mm-hmm. these echo chambers once in a while and meet people who are different than you.
1: And it's probably important to, t- to take some of these ideas you bring in the book and think about them long term moving ahead, correct?
0: Yes, I dedicated um, sections of each chapter on how we can utilize this knowledge for power, because I believe it can be an important agent for change. By exposing these hidden forces, we'll get to know ourselves better, and just as important, we'll get to understand people who are different than
1: us. Bill, pleasure to have you on the show. Again, welcome back to Penn for a little while, and good luck uh, with the book. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Uh, the book, again, please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. Bill Sullivan at Indiana University is the author of the book, which is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.